Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, and welcome once again to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and in this podcast, my guest tells me the five things from their life that they would choose to bury in a time capsule to preserve them. Well, four things they wish to keep safe because they cherish them, but also one thing they would like to be rid of, something they would be pleased to bury in the ground and never have to think about again. My guest in this episode is the actor Sophie Aldred, who is famous around the world for playing Ace, the companion to the seventh Doctor Who, played by Sylvester McCoy. But her career has been a varied and very busy one. Sophie's been involved with numerous TV shows and cartoon shows with her wonderful voice skills, including Gentrification, Cops and Monsters, Rainbow, Melvin and Maureen's Musicogram, the classic El Nombre with Steve Steen, Kate Robbins and Janet Ellis, and on one occasion me, Tiny and Crew, Whimsy's House, Zap, all 41 episodes, Sergeant Stripes, Noddy in Toyland, Dennis and Nasher, Bob the Builder, Tree Food Tom, and Peter Rabbit. Of course, Sophie's done loads of work with Big Finish and the Doctor Who dramas that they make, as well as such things as Return of the Sinatrans, Mind Game, and Mind Game Trilogy. And of course, the five-ish Doctors. Sophie's worked in the theatre, she's done voices on video games, and made a number of films. But what are the five things you'll choose to put into her time capsule? And can she limit it to five? Well, knowing her, probably not. Anyway, let's find out. Here is the delightful Sophie Aldred. Occasionally we'll be asked to do something with somebody who can play an instrument incredibly well. And you go, whatever drove you to spend all those hours and hours and hours as a child, every day, practising, practising, practising. Whereas we just go, well, I can talk and I can stand, so I I think I'll be an actor. 
<laughs> and also, don't you love it, the world of voiceovers, because we don't even have to learn the lines. <laughs> we sit down. <laughs> yeah. We're so lazy. Well, no, I say we. I'm so lazy. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm with you on that. Yes. And as you say, those books, when you get those books that have hundreds of different characters and you feel this if you've really worked hard then, don't you, when you've yes. marked it all out? Or even if you've read the book once. <laughs> <laughs> don't give those secrets oh, away. Oh, no, we've studied for days, days. The dedication. Till our eyes bleed or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and you have done some of the most amazing voice work. It's extraordinary. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I've just been very lucky. Actually, that comes into one of the things that I was going to say for one of my Ooh. time capsule things, which I rejected. Ah, really? Yeah. Well, do you want to talk about it now? We yeah, can maybe okay. we'll, maybe you'll change your mind. Yeah. You can sneak it in. Okay. Well, yeah, it's the voiceover stuff. I don't know about you, Mike, but I've always enjoyed doing silly voices and I was thinking somebody asked me about this and I thought where did it come from where where does that ability to do voices come from and one of the things that I was thinking of putting in the time capsule was our old playroom in Blackheath <laughs> in southeast London where I was brought up very lovely mm. very privileged childhood really sort of you know upper middle class father in the advertising world Mm -hmm. And uh, we lived in this lovely house from about the age of 11, I think I was. And I've got a younger brother who's three years younger than me. And we had this playroom at the top of the house under the eaves. And we had this map of, of the world, a sort of children's map of the world on the wall. And we had lots of dolls and different teddies and things like that. And we used to play together for hours mm. and we had this game which is just so lovely where we used to put a pin in the map of the world and then we'd tuck them all into their beds which would be their vehicle of transport to get to this place and then we'd pretend <laughs> that we were traveling there and then they'd have adventures in this place and all the teddies and dolls had different voices so my tiny tears for example my she was called big tiny <laughs> and she was the bossy one. So she had a voice rather like that. She was very much of the handbag tradition. <laughs> and then my brother's Teddy, who rejoiced in the name for some odd reason, uh, Teddy Popscrew, he was called. I don't know why. <laughs> and he was the hero always. And he used to talk like this. He was a very nice Teddy. All <laughs> these toys had different voices. And my brother and I used to do all these and then I used to read him stories as well. And I remember he used to beg me to stop because <laughs> I would go on and on. So I think it began there, really. No, it must do. Isn't it just every child's dream that you go and you put a costume on, suddenly you are a pirate? Well, we ended up doing it for a living, didn't we? Yeah. I nod enough. I love that thing no. of putting on costumes. <gasps> Isn't it wonderful? Yeah. yeah. Really great. Yeah. <laughs> My youngest son is a burgeoning drag queen. He's taught himself to do the makeup and, and he makes his own costumes. He's oh, wow. He makes corsets from scratch. He's taught himself from YouTube and he had all these um, sewing skills anyway. Mm. And he says that his drag name is Wilma Hickey Heel. <laughs> and he looks incredible. I mean, beautiful. Wilma is, she is beautiful. It's like a ritual. Mm. And I really understand that, don't you? Mm -hmm. How old is he? He's 19. And has he done it as a show yet? 
He has. He's done a couple of shows. Oh, yeah. brilliant. He made one costume he made from his old school uniform. He did a show at his, his school. He had these three backing singers. They did... Do you know, you must know the old um, old Cape Cod, old standard. Mm-hmm. And he was in a Burberry Mac and he gradually did the reveal. You know, he took the, wow. the Burberry Mac. Off. It was amazing. It is amazing, isn't it? I mean, I think particularly nowadays, it's wonderful that people who think, do you know, I'd like to do that. They wouldn't feel the pressure from his other school friends to not do it. No. You know, most people would go, wow, that's amazing. Yes, and I think RuPaul has been instrumental in Absolutely. That. Yeah. yeah. I, I, if the world was run by RuPaul, <laughs> probably Jurgen Klopp. Yes, Richard uh, Curtis. And Richard Curtis, there, there we, we go. Some women, though. Well, I think Richard Curtis is run by Emma Freud, so I think that's fine. That's okay. Yeah, we'll have Emma. Yeah, yeah, wonderful. <laughs> so that's the thing you were going to put in, but then you rejected it. So I'm very interested to find out what the things that superseded that then. Yeah, okay. So the first one, Michael, is the North Norfolk coast. And it's a particular bit of the North Norfolk coast. The stre- I'm trying to think of exactly, but probably the stretch between Wells next to the sea and going, uh, let's see, I'm not very good at east and west, going west, <laughs> left, that is, isn't it? Yeah. Going west to probably, Brancaster State would be nice to include because it includes this amazing pub called the Jolly Sailors where my brother and I used to play darts in the children's room <laughs> while my parents used to go and have a pint. Oh. Um, but in particular, my dad and stepmom still live up there. So I do visit still. And it's like it's where my soul is, I think, on those marshes. Mm. And in particular, the marshes at Burnham Over Stay, this massive sky, this marshland which changes colour according to the seasons with sea lavender occasionally and just like and the tidal creeks and the reason why I'm I so love it is that it is my childhood Mm. we were brought up in southeast London as I said but we were very fortunate that we spent a lot of our holidays up in Burnham over Estave initially in an amazing hotel called the Moorings Hotel which was one of these sort of family hotels that had been going on for years and years. I think my grandparents used to go originally and take my mum. And apparently uh, she was pregnant with me walking over the marshes. So I think it's in my DNA. Yes. And the Moorings was one of these brilliant hotels where the smell, the smell of bloaters and some kind of furniture polish, if I ever smell that smell, there I am back there. They had a billiard room full of stuffed birds, an amazing <laughs> collection. And you could go and collect cockles on the cockle strand, dig for cockles, and then bring them back in your bucket. And uh, they'd cook them for your tea. Wow. And you could walk around with your sandy feet. And Perfect. it was just a real family place. Was it right on the front? Right on the edge oh. of the, yes, of the creek. Mm. And, uh, and then you could do your boating and stuff like that. Mm. But I was thinking about this the other day. Now it's got too popular for me around there. So it would have to be in the 1970s. Yes. The bit that goes in in the time capsule. And we were very extraordinarily lucky that then my father, eventually, when the hotel closed down, we stayed in cottages there. And then my father borrowed some money from my mum's dad, my grandfather, and he bought this cottage and I remember it was six thousand pounds <laughs> and now apparently Burnham over Dave I don't think you can buy a cottage there for less than 
a million and more. It's the most extraordinary village in Norfolk. But not surprising, it is idyllic, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, I know it not terribly well, but I have been there. And that whole coast along there, it's not one that I've visited often. But I think that it's as close to what Dickens writes about as you can get, really. Yes. No, no, it's not what he's writing about. He's writing about the Kent coast. But actually, that has changed. But there, you get a real sense of the slowness of time. Yes, and the mud flats, mm. and you can see the shifting of the sands as well, and the kind of the nature is is still raw there. I remember when I was well. First thing is, I saved up and bought myself a little kayak, a wooden and canvas kayak. Wow! When the tide used to come in in the creek, I used to paddle myself up these creeks and look at birds, and it was just the most brilliant thing. And then my brother and I saved up years later and bought ourselves a mirror dinghy do you remember yeah, that the I do, yes. daily mirror had this sort of i mean bizarrely isn't it mm. the daily mirror they had this idea that yeah everyone... who were they aiming at with their readers for that I don't I know. where no. were those amazons and swallows or swallows and yeah, swallows, and amazons, swallows and yeah. amazons kids where yeah. were they reading the daily exactly. mirror amazing that's right so we bought one of those but i remember talking about nature I knew all the birds' names. I knew all about, I used to draw pictures and Mm. stuff. And one day I remember walking across the marsh, sort of going in a straight line rather than along the path and jumping across these little creeks and things. Mm. And all of a sudden I came to this little creek a few feet wide and there was a shark in it. (gasps) I'm not kidding. Wow. And I looked at this thing, and of course, this is before the days of, way before the days of mobile phones. So there was no way that anyone was going to believe me. No. I just stood and I looked at this shark. It was dead. And I was thinking, what is this doing here? And it was had a slightly sort of blue tinge to it. So I wrote to, this is very typically me, Blue Peter and all that. Mm. I wrote to The Living World, I think it was called, on Radio 4. And I said, uh, I've got a question. I saw this shark. And they got back and they said, oh, it was a something shark, which is quite common around the coast. And I, I looked it up in the library and I thought, no, it's not. And I think it was a blue shark, which had got way off course somewhere. But mm. it had obviously come into the creek at high tide and then couldn't turn round. Yeah. And then the water had gone out and left it stranded. How tragic. I know, I know. But the sort of... That wonder of nature and that sort of beauty of open spaces, that's mm. never left me. And I still, I almost cry when I go there because <laughs> it's so nostalgic. Another thing we used to do, we had lots of friends up there and people who used to go in the holiday seasons. And um, we used to take the boat out to this Sculpthead Island, which is this wonderful, lovely, beautiful, sandy beaches just going on forever and ever. Mm. We used to sort of take our outboard boat out there and then we all used to drag the boat back at low tide. (laughs) And I remember with a a few of the fact we used, Joseph and his amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat had just come out Mm. and we were all singing it at school. I've still got the school copy. (laughs) And from the island, all the kids used to sing Joseph all the way back, pulling this boat along the creek. Wow. Fantastic memory, that was. Yes, amazing freedom as well, because actually, when you think about it, those tidal channels are quite dangerous. I would not let my children. (laughs) I mean, I know people say this, oh, we used to go out of the house and play all day, but we we did. Mm. We used to go down and my parents didn't know where we were for a lot of the day. No. We just 
be down in the mud and the creeks and oh go sailing somebody would say oh can you come and crew for me or whatever and, and only about 10 percent of us died yeah exactly it wasn't that bad no not that bad really <laughs> I wish I could ring up now and book us in to the moorings oh, in 1970. So do I. Oh, you'd love it. Walk in off the beach with our sandy feet and say, could we have a cup of tea in the lounge, please? And there was a gong for dinner as well, oh. so bang the gong, yeah. Just once or twice as a child, I stayed in places like that. My father got to the point where he became middle class, even though he came from a very working-class background, and so he had aspirations to be properly middle class, and we would occasionally stay in those sort of country hotels. My father never really succeeded. We used to go out to Sunday lunch to rather nice restaurants, and he would say, I'll order the wine. And he used to order a thing that a barrister had told him, that's good quality, that. And so he always insisted on ordering it, and it was called Barsac, which is a Sauterne, which is a pudding wine. Oh, yes. And so he ordered it with everything? With everything. Oh, yeah. oh, how funny. Well, it probably was delicious. It was delicious. The yeah. best thing to have with roast beef. <laughs> My dad, um, being in the advertising world, he loved his wine and he was thinking of going into the wine trade right. anyway. He was a self-made man as well. Mm-hmm. He was born in a very working class background in mm-hmm. uh, South Derbyshire and then got scholarship eventually to public school and then went to Oxford and mm-hmm. so on. Very strangely, I met somebody just yesterday who was in advertising, and he was a man who came up with the slogan, you can do it if you be in it." <gasps> did your father, what did he work in? Was well, he, uh... he was on the account side. Ah. He was the youngest director of an advertising agency, and he was very much in the world of mad men and, you know, yeah. all that. But he was a family man, so he sort of missed the kind of sex and drugs and rock and roll bit. I think. Yes, which it definitely uh, was in the 70s and yeah. 80s, wasn't it? Yeah. Fantastic. What a lovely picture, though, of you in the moorings. And I'm definitely putting that in there. Oh, goody. Brilliant. OK, that's the first thing. OK, first thing. Mm. Well, funnily enough, you were mentioning Swallows and Amazons, mm-hmm. Arthur Ransom. And I looked at that because I adored and still adore. When I, whenever I'm ill, I sort of grab a, an Arthur Ransom and, and read it. Oh. And they still stand up, the books, Swallows and Amazons and Swallowdale and Winter Holiday. And... Really? I don't think I've read it since yeah. I was a child. Oh, I love it. Read them to your grandkids. They what a great them. idea, I will. Yeah. Um, my boys never took to them, but I I love them. And you can get facsimile copies with those lovely covers. Mm. So I was thinking of those, but no, I'm not going to have those. It could also... <laughs> You're very been... skillful at almost putting things in. I know. <laughs> um, could have been Thunderbirds, because when I was young, I thought I was Scott Tracy from Thunderbird 1. <laughs> and my mum made me a little costume. You know those cigar cases? Yeah. She made me those those with the bullet holders on the sash. And <laughs> Brilliant. Um, but no. That's not going in, though. No, it's no. going to be the complete works of Rich Crompton, uh, <laughs> the Just William stories. Mm-hmm. The reason for that is I loved reading when I was a child. I was very fortunate enough to be able to read well. And... I just love the William stories, and I still do. If you read them now, they are so well written and so funny. And she's just got little boys down to a T. And what I love about William is that he's not deliberately naughty. He's never deliberately bad. No. And when I used to read them, um, I don't know about you, but I used to think about putting plays on all the time. I don't know why, because it wasn't in my family. 
But when I started reading them, I thought, right, this would be a really good play. So I wrote my own versions of the plays wow. when I was about 10, I think it was, 9 or 10. And I took them to school and I used to, uh, I, I had this group, which was like my little gang. Mm. There was uh, Ruth and Linda and... I can't remember who was. Anyway, I was William, of course. Mm -hmm. And it was a really good excuse because I went to a kind of a posh girls' public day school trust, Blackheath High School, and we had to be quite mindful of having our socks up and things like this. <laughs> so I was a tomboy, and being William gave me carte blanche to have my socks down by my ankles and have fights <laughs> at the end of the play because the, 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 my plays would always end with a fight. Yes, and your cap askew. Yeah, my cap askew. And we did have this old school cap. <laughs> and, of course, the voices. So did you do the boy voice? Yes, William was, um, I mean, Martin Jarvis does them so brilliantly. Brilliant. But when I met my wonderful husband, Vince, 27 years ago, we found that although he came from a housing estate, a very rough housing estate in Liverpool, he discovered the mobile library in Liverpool when he was young. Mm. And he devoured the Just William books. Uh. And he loved them too. And so I started reading them to him with all the voices. <laughs> so, yes, William is William's quite hard done by, really, and he sounds like that. And then there's, of course, all the other. Douglas is is a bit a bit slow. I don't know why. <laughs> and then there's Violet Elizabeth, and scream and scream until she's sick. <laughs> anyway, I occasionally will, if he's not feeling very well, I'll still read him a, a Just William book. That is William's voice. You've absolutely got it. When you read it, that is the voice you hear. It's a, it's a boy trying to be serious, and things are important. Yeah, he really does care, and he wants, mm. to, he wants to do things properly with his licorice water, and you know, they're just, if you could give me a, a, a farthing to go to the sweet shop, that would be amazing. Yeah, I'll, I'll do that for you. It would probably go wrong, but... You know. <laughs> and on our wedding day, after our ceremony... We had a little um, sort of get-together and people did poems and things. Mm. And Vince read a bit that he, I didn't realise, but he'd actually written, a la Richmond Crompton, a bit of a William book. <laughs> William and the girl next door, who William quite liked the look of. They didn't get together, of course, but they, you know, he admired. And it was just, I, I, it made me cry because mm. he would write that for me. It was really lovely. I mean, despite the fact that he loved the books, what does he do? Um, he's the oldest street performer in town. <laughs> and he got on his unicycle this summer in Edinburgh. We've been to Edinburgh every... That was another thing that was going to go in, Arthur's Seat, where he proposed to me just outside Edinburgh. We go to the Edinburgh Festival every single summer mm. and he street performs and he mentors the younger street performers. And wow. He did some... TV presenting as well. He's a brilliant TV presenter, fantastic interviewer, but he didn't really love that ever as much as he liked street performing. Clearly, if you're going to stick to street performing, you must love it. The bit I like the best is the bit at the beginning where they're getting the crowd to be an oh, audience. Just these amazing. people just walking through the street and then they watch you perform it. It's incredible. It is extraordinary to have watched over the years the skill. Mm. He did some stand-up once, but he said he didn't enjoy it because the audience was already sitting there. <laughs> I always think, even now, 27 years later, I sit there in West Parliament Square and I think, oh, not many people are coming. Mm. There's only 10 people and a dog. 
Mm. And then it builds and builds and builds. And by the end of the show, there's about 250 people all crammed around just having this experience that nobody else will ever have again. No. And so it's just for them. And they can pay what they like or they can walk away Mm -hmm. or the street performer can say, oh, no, this isn't going very well and fail the show. (laughs) Anything can happen. Their skill in improvising as well is amazing. Yeah. yeah, it's completely democratic as well. I love it. Mm-hmm. And they all look after each other. In Edinburgh, they put their festival passes in a bag or a hat. Yeah. And they draw. They have the draw at 10 o'clock. And if you're not at the draw, you don't get a show. And that's the order in which you perform, is it? Yes, it's the order and the pitch. Yeah, because there'll be particular times when it's a great time to perform. You're going to make most money. Yeah. yeah. And different shows suit different pitches. And they all look after each other. All over the world as well. So they'll they'll show. Oh, are you going to so and so? You going to this? Are you going to Adelaide? Are you going to Canada? Something. Uh, and that is a skill. Do you know? I've always rather fancied busking. Mm. Not a street performer. I'm not sure I could. I don't know. Maybe if I worked up an act, but I don't have any particular skills. <laughs> but I would. I like the idea of being on a street and just entertaining people. I've done it, Mike. Have you? Yes, because. Uh, It was just after we were married and a friend of mine who is in Edinburgh was something to do with a festival, an arts festival in Georgia, ex-Russia, Georgia. Right, yeah. And we thought, wow, that sounds like an adventure. Let's go. Mm. So Vince and I went with two other street performers and we did a show on the streets of Georgia. (laughs) I sang unaccompanied Ivan Novello songs on the streets of Georgia. Well, there you are. So you could do it. Yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm definitely, I'm going to do it. It's one of those things that I really need to do because I just, I like the idea that actually people walking along are suddenly entertained by somebody. And of course, as you showed there, it's something you can do anywhere. Do you know, I have one idea that uh, would take a bit of work, but I'm tempted to do it. There's a tunnel right near the globe. I know. know People walk through there and occasionally get a busker in there. But I thought it would be very interesting if you had a list of soliloquies on a board and they could pick one and you would perform it. What a great idea. You could be in costumes. Yeah, well. you'd stand there with a ruff and dressed as Shakespeare, and you would say, "Which one do you want?" And they'd say, "Well, the Hamlet one." And you go, "Okay, to be or not to be—that is the question. Whether it is noble in them." And off you'd go, and you'd learn them all. You'd learn those those soliloquies. Also, being in a tunnel, you wouldn't get rained off. No, and the acoustics are brilliant. Yes. <laughs> oh, you've got to do it. It's a good idea, isn't it? Yeah, very good idea. Mm. I love it. I'll come and put something in the hat. <laughs> okay, I'll let you know when I do it. Brilliant. But Just William. Just William. In he goes. The full works. Hurrah. In they go. That's number two. Great. Okay, I hope you're enjoying my time capsule so far. Before we hear the other things that Sophie's chosen to put into her time capsule, we'll take a short break for some ads. We'll be back very soon. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back. Unless you've just been sitting there all through the ads, in which case you've not been anywhere and it's me that's been away. In which case, I'm back. Hooray! And here are the rest of Sophie Aldred's time capsule items. Okay, so let's have a look. Number three. Oh, yes. <laughs> Number three is the Archers. <laughs> I'm a huge Radio 4 fan. I think Radio 4, or maybe I'll have Radio 4 including the arches, maybe Radio 4 with I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue and uh, Just a Minute and all those fabulous mm-hmm, shows mm. and all the kind of documentaries that you get that you wouldn't get anywhere else. <laughs> I know. Who would think that the money programme would be something you'd listen to and enjoy? Yeah. But it is. Yeah. File on for... Women's Hour. I mean, absolutely just breaks the mould. Yes. Brilliant institution, nothing else like it around the world. Mm. And the Archers, I think, is a sort of cornerstone, one of the cornerstones. I first listened to it in the 60s, and it must have been on, I presume it's always been on about just after the news at two o'clock, mm-hmm. because I think Listen With Mother was on first, and I would have been listening to Listen With Mother round our 60s Formica kitchen table. <laughs> I've got this memory, particular memory, of sitting there and my mother sort of clanging some pots and pans or maybe even boiling my brother's nappies on the cooker, you know, because mm. that's what we did in those days. And listening to... Which really, uh, Billy Connolly was absolutely right. It should be our national anthem. <laughs> yes. It's such a brilliant tune, the orchestral arrangement. And then on the Sunday, you get the uh, other version of it. Yeah. And it's just, it's brilliant. And it's always there. I, li- I remember listening to it. And as I grew up thinking, why is my mum, who lives in South East London, why is she listening to an everyday story of country folk? Mm. And then as I got older, I got it. Mm-hmm. The kind of nostalgia of it in a way, but also the sort of the soap opera, the everyday, the boring. I love the boringness of it. Yeah. When they bring in something a bit dramatic, it's a bit disappointing. <laughs> you would enjoy talking to my wife. She agrees entirely with you. She loves the fact that there will be storylines that cover years yeah. And they're just mentioned every couple of months. They just will yeah. refer to it. Just drop it in, like life. Like life. Yeah. And eventually they become important. Yeah. I love the fact that people grow up and grow old and have a job for life. Mm. And it's just amazing. And so life goes on. Yeah. In Ambridge. Yeah. The bull will always be there and <laughs> Boa Loxley will always be there. And-, and characters who you think will never go, they suddenly go. 
It's extraordinary when that happens. It can be incredibly moving. You've got an actor acting the sadness of that character about the fact that somebody they've known for so long has died or has moved away. And then you also know underneath it is the fact that that actual actor has been friends with this person performing that for maybe 35, 40 years. And so they are also feeling it as well. I think it gives it an extra depth you don't get in any other drama. No. Well, there's that real relationship there that underpins the acting as well. I think they've dealt with some brilliant issues as well, very sensitively. Mm. Like um, a few years ago, do you remember there was um, a thread about narcissism and domestic abuse, Mm. emotional abuse? Mm done very subtly because of course you can just as you're saying you can just drop the story in and then more recently um alcoholism yeah. you know and it and it, they can afford to let the story breathe mm. which i love and it's fine acting as well really I good think. really good acting yeah i i have been known to shout at the radio sometimes for incorrect inflection <laughs> <laughs> but then i will cry as well so i i think it was a few years ago and i think I think Linda Snell's dog, Captain, had gone missing in the floods. Mm. And then she found out that he'd actually died, I think. And I was doing the washing up and I was in floods of tears. Huh. My son came in and he said, Mum, what's the matter? I said, Captain. <laughs> and he said, Who's Captain? And I was Linda Snell's dog. <laughs> and he said, So, Mum, you're crying about the death of a fictional dog. Okay. And they remind me of yes, this. Yes, a dog that, to a large extent, is simply a sound effect. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't think he'd even been a sound effect. I don't think he'd been Yeah, no, well, but that's, a, that's amazing, isn't it? It's true of all radio drama and Radio 4, if we're looking at the whole package. Some of the dramas that they do are astonishing. I've been involved in some amazing dramas, Yes. Surrounded by extraordinary people. I've worked with Olivia Coleman very early in her career, luckily on television and on radio, but she was just so blindingly good. And David Tennant, I worked with David Tennant when he was a very young actor. You must have had these experiences. Yes, well, I worked with David first when I think I was pregnant with Adam, so that must have been 22 years ago. Mm. So it was way before he was an actor. And um, he was very good friends with Nick Briggs, who runs the Big Finish, yeah. this that makes um, Doctor Who. Because he's always been a fan of Doctor Who, hasn't he, David? Yes. Yeah, so David was this huge fan of Doctor Who and he really wanted to be in Doctor Who. Mm. So they said, oh, well, you can be in this. And he walked into the green room, this lovely young actor, and he played this nasty Nazi in the story of Colditz. And it was Sylvester who was my Doctor Who and me, mm. my character Ace. And we'd got somehow caught up in this whole plot in, in Colditz. <laughs> so David had to do this sort of dodgy German accent. And just as you say, for a start, when he walked into the green room, just this bloke, mm. he had the most extraordinary presence. And then his acting was just brilliant. I loved brilliant. working. Yeah. Yeah. It's a wonderful thing because it just makes you it makes you get better. You have to be better, otherwise you're going to look like a fool. It raises the bar, doesn't it? Mm. Anyway, so he did that, and then he got Doctor Who, <laughs> and then I was up for a, an animation called Tree Foo Tom, yeah, playing this young boy, 
and my agent said, right, we don't know who the star is going to be. It's your sidekick is going to be this. And we were talking about money like you do. And they said, well, they can't go any higher because otherwise it would be, you know, you've got to have a little bit of a parapet <laughs> on the, the feet. And I thought, gosh, who's it going to be? I didn't know. It could have been male or female, this character. So then it turned out to be David. So David was my sidekick, my comedy sidekick in this brilliant animation called Tree Foo Tom. Mm. And it was so lovely because we met in the sound company you know, near the BBC. And it was just so lovely to see him again. He's a delightful man, isn't he? Yeah. And he's kind of kept his family away from the limelight mm -hmm. and he gets on with it. And he's just a thoroughly nice guy. Yeah. Ah, oh, there we are. Yeah, that brings me on to my fourth item, if I can have Radio 4. You can have the whole of it, the entire history. It's there. It's going to take you a long time to listen to it, but it's there for you. Gosh, what a treat. Just think of having the whole of Radio 4 <laughs> forever. <laughs> I think that's a good legacy, isn't it? Uh, maybe that's some people's heaven. That's it. You go, you open the time capsule, and you just can listen to You'll never catch up, of course. We can do without the news. Okay. So if we edit out the news, you're, you've, you're sort of catching up. Yes. I can see this is an allegory for uh, heading towards the end of time and being judged and going to paradise. There we are. There we go. Mm. That will do. Mm -hmm. Yes. Great. Perfect. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Number four, then. Well, the fourth one is the jacket that I wore playing the character of Ace. And it became a sort of real iconic thing. When I went to do Doctor Who, I'd never done any telly before. I'd been doing theatre. Mm. And I'd been doing a lot of sort of children's theatre and um, going around schools and stuff. And then I'd done national number one tours, doing mainly musical stuff as well. I did a tour of Hansel and Gretel, the opera by Engelbert Humperdinck. Wow. No, by the original. The original oh. Engelbert, yes. Yeah, the original. Yes, not Please Release uh, Me, no. No. And I was in musicals, which is weird because I don't dance, although I, I do dance, but not I'm not a trained dancer. Mm. But I've always been trained as a singer, so I, I love singing. And um, so I was sort of heading into the world of musicals. And then suddenly out of nowhere, I got this audition for Doctor Who and got the part. <laughs> and then they said, well, we don't just want you for three episodes. Would you like to be the new Doctor Who girl. I mean, I didn't even have a screen test. Wow. It was a complete punt by the director and the producer at the time. It was amazing. How brilliant that they had the freedom to do that. Yes, mm. isn't it? Because the BBC had slightly given up on Doctor Who, to be honest. So they were letting the producer do his own thing, mm. which was great for me. And I remember going into this room at North Acton Rehearsal Studios. Do you remember North Acton? Oh, very well. Just the most brilliant building where everything was rehearsed mm. and we had this read through and there was Sylvester and Bonnie Langford and there was Tony Sober and Edward Peel. I was absolutely nobody and I sat there feeling rather small and at the end of it, script editor came to me and said, oh, I love what you're wearing. Do you think that's the sort of thing that Ace would wear? And I looked at my cut-off army shorts and my Doc Martin boots <laughs> and my stripy jumper I thought oh yeah yeah right and I thought that meant oh I could go and design my costume mm. like I had done for such a lot of other shows that I'd done so I went off and 
did some research and found that these very trendy girls were wearing these black jackets from millets, those sort of flight jackets. Yeah. And they were customising them with badges and safety pins and sort of punky, post-punky stuff. A lot of them had those um, car badges. We didn't do that because we thought that wouldn't be very good. Uh, no, the ones that have been stolen, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I said to the designer, well, can we do this? And he said, yeah, great idea. So we went out and we bought this stuff. And then I brought loads of my badges in, including my two Blue Peter badges. <laughs> that I'd won in the 1970s and Jerry Anderson Fan Club badge and Rupert Bear Club, because my mum loves Rupert Bear, all sorts of things. And I decorated this jacket and it became this real, like, iconic thing. Mm. And now I go to Comic-Cons a lot and conventions and of course everyone cosplays and people can cosplay this jacket and there's a thing even on the internet where you can look up which badges it is and somebody there's some guys in America who are in touch with me saying could you just take a photograph of your badge and you know then they make them up and people can buy them it's incredible isn't it just and then for many years I had the jacket well I've still got the jacket hanging in my wardrobe in the spare room and for many years in the pocket it had a piece of paper in it saying please return to room so-and-so at BBC <laughs> and I conveniently lost that after a few years and seeing as that room doesn't even exist anymore no in fact the entire costume department yes, yes. it would have gone with everything else oh. and when because I'm in Jodie Whittaker's final episode and uh, when Chris Chibnall the producer called me and said would you do me the honour of... I said, horses wouldn't stop me. <laughs> and I said to him halfway through our chat, I said, um, I've still got the jacket, by the way. Would you like it? He went, oh, yes. So I took it down to the costume department and Ray Holman, lovely costume designer, brilliant man. He said, oh, can we borrow it so that we can copy it? And I said, you don't need to. We'll just use the jacket. Yeah. And so he kept hold of it. And apparently he said people kept coming in to the costume department saying, could I just have a look? (laughs) And then I did wear the jacket and um, I had to obviously keep it a secret from everybody, even, well, my husband knew, Vince knew, but the boys didn't know. They knew I was going away. And one of my sons said to me at one point, he said, Mom, you know, you're going to Cardiff filming. Well, do they film in Cardiff? (laughs) Sherlock? Yeah. (laughs) And then the other one, the other son said to me one day, Mum, why has your ace jacket disappeared from the wardrobe? Isn't that clever? Yeah, they'd worked it out. So they kind of knew, but they never didn't ask me. No, and they didn't tell anyone. How great. And nor did any of the fans who did find out kind of by mistake. It's such a brilliantly well-kept secret. Well, fans are amazing, are they? They're not there to spoil it. They're there because they love it. Fans are amazing. Doctor Who fans are incredible. There's some people who I've known for all these years, mm. uh, and and they're just they support you through thick and thin. I know that if ever I had a real problem, I could call on a Doctor Who fan and they'd help me out with something. Wow! And there are people who have become friends as well, and who are professionals. I mean, when when the show came off air in 1989. And Sylvester and I were completely gutted, as you can imagine. Mm. Some of the fans who worked at the BBC or who were professionals started doing their own thing and they started writing their own scripts and then doing 
audios and spin-offs and things. Mm. And they contacted us and said, would you like to do them? We thought, yes, of course. Mm. We love our characters. We'd love to do that. So I remember standing in somebody's, there was a dank basement in somewhere like Brixton with a microphone and a speaker. I've recorded there. Have you recorded that? Mm. Somebody's house. I did a Doctor Who audio in that basement, yes. Oh, yeah. And then this guy who'd written one for us called somebody like Mark Gatiss. He was there. (laughs) I know. (laughs) And then there was Russell T. Davis, of course. Mm -hmm. Moffat. Yeah, they were the real fans. They were the ones that drove the idea that this should come back. This is bigger than you think it is. And they've been proven absolutely right, haven't they? Yeah. And then now it's going to be fascinating to see. Isn't it just? Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing to see how the thing evolves and changes. My first doctor was John Pertwee. And then I remember the first convention I was ever invited to. There he was with his unit buddies, Nick Courtney and John Levine and Richard Franklin. I remember looking and thinking, Doctor Who. (laughs) Then I got to know him and everybody who's played Doctor Who has had some extraordinary quality about them. Mm -hmm. The idea of the Doctor is the fact that he's not human and yet has the greatest amount of humanity about him. Yes, him or her. I beg your pardon, absolutely. And it's brilliant because Doctor Who is... The first they, really. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. They're a Time Lord. <laughs> there we are. Yeah. That's another thing about Doctor Who fans is that they've been at the forefront of any sexuality issues. Mm. At a Doctor Who convention, people feel very safe. They can express themselves in the way that they want to express themselves. Whatever they're wearing, whatever they want to look like, mm-hmm. nobody's going to judge them. It's it's a brilliant Brilliant place, brilliant safe space. Yes, people need those places in life. And uh, if that is being a fan of something and then finding other people who are equally fans, it's really lovely. You see that amongst these people. They have this one thing that brings them together and then they're able to be themselves because they know they have that shared love. Yeah. How brilliant. I'm going to put that jacket in there and and people are going to be very, very jealous that I have any sort of access to it at all. (laughs) 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 <laughs> so we've only got the thing to put in there that you'd like to reject from your life, something you want to forget. Okay, well, I've been thinking about lots of things and I'm quite an optimist, mm. actually. And I do tend to see the best and I do like most things. So this is quite hard, actually. I mean, there's the obvious things, which like climate change and mm-hmm. people who throw litter. And <laughs> I could get grumpy about certain dog owners who haven't trained their dogs properly. Mm-hmm. This is a smell. I've got a very strong sense of smell, which is usually lovely. And I say to my husband, being like, oh, smell that smell. Like, for example, one of my favourite smells is the smell of a certain type of lichen, or lichen, as we used to call it Mm. in the old days. And it comes from when I did this survey of fresh air in the 70s. Uh, They were doing a fresh air survey, even back then. And I noticed that this particular kind of lichen has a really beautiful smell of course you can't describe the smell but it's very sweet and I've seen it sometimes in graveyards and on the north Norfolk coast Mm. you can sometimes smell this mm, beautiful smell anyway well no I'm jealous of that because I I wasn't aware that lichen smelt at all I'm gonna have to Mm. really try and find out what that is it may just be fresh air 
No, it's a sort of sweetish smell. It is like a sort of a very slight perfume. Oh. I can't wear perfume and smell perfume myself because it's too strong. Too me. strong, yes. My wife has a very strong sense of smell and she never wears perfume because she said, no, it's overwhelming. Yeah. Anyway, the smell that I just want to bury forever, and it's bizarre given my love of the sea and the seaside and uh, and boats and sailing and so on, but it's the smell of fish, <laughs> even fresh fish. And it's funny because I was talking to my husband and I went, we usually go for a walk every day and we were going through what I could. And he said, really, don't you like the smell of fish? And we've known each other for 27 years. <laughs> and I said, Gosh, didn't you know that about me? So there's still some surprises, aren't there? Always, yes. Yeah, which is rather nice. But anyway, the smell of fish, fresh fish. Now, seafood, I have no problem with. Mussels, oysters. In fact, on my 30th birthday, my wonderful boyfriend at the time took me out for lunch to, I think we went lunch to the Michelin bar, you know, and Mm. I had half a dozen oysters there. And then rules for more oysters uh, that evening. So, yeah, uh, it's very odd. And somehow the smell of normal wet fish just makes me feel a bit sick. So cooked fish, are you all right once it's been cooked? No, No. even Mm. No, fish fingers is okay, but that's not really fish. Not really, no. Fish and chippy fish. I don't really like it, but I could do that. But it's funny, isn't it? Because I like the smell of ozone and the sea, obviously. But I... I remember, and I was reminding my dad of this the other day, um, I think all my memories seem to be around when I was about 11. <laughs> I, don't why, I don't know why. It can't be, but I'll say I was 11. And we were driving up to Norfolk for the weekend, and we stopped. We took a little detour and went to Cambridge. I can't remember why. And we went to this little restaurant, and I ch- it said on the menu, seafood platter. And I thought, oh, this is going to be nice. This will be <laughs> mussels and cockles and yes. oysters. Yeah. And that. Prawns. Yes. And it came and it was mackerel. And, <laughs> and it had bones. Oh, no. And I cried and made a real fuss in the stroppy, <laughs> overprivileged, upper middle class. <laughs> way. Take me back to my attic room with the wallpaper and the map of the world. I'm not eating this muck. <laughs> and I said to my dad, do you remember? He said, oh yeah, do I remember? <laughs> but yeah, I just don't like, and I remember being younger than that actually. We used to also, again, my privileged background, we also used to go to Sweden on holiday. We had a lovely family who we used to visit. So fish everywhere. Fish everywhere. I remember being taken mackerel fishing and thinking, oh, this is going to be really good fun. We got a hilarious photo of me in the boat with the catch, like looking (laughs) at my face, it's wrinkled, (laughs) and then having to eat this stuff. Oh, horrible. (laughs) I've always really liked the smell of fresh fish. You know, I'd go fish market. I always wanted to like the smell of fish because we had this, one of my very favourite children's books growing up was this lovely book. We've still got it in the loo. I'll I'll read it sometimes because it's got the most beautiful illustrations as well. Anyway, this book is called Old Winkle and the Gulls. (laughs) And uh, Old Winkle, he feeds the gulls every day and uh, everybody, all the other fishermen think that he's got a screw loose. And so they're all scoffing at him. and, (laughs) And then one day there's no fish anywhere. And the fishermen sit on the wharf 
and the women in the uh, who are in the fish market they've got nothing to do and the cat gets really thin but old winkle goes out in his fishing boat and he goes out a bit further than everyone else and he's got this clapped out old fishing boat and then the gulls take him to this place and there's a massive shoal and he goes back to the harbour and he gets all the other fishermen and there and then there's fish everywhere all over the quay and they're all prosperous again and the mayor and and then old winkle is like one of the good chaps then and there's you as a child thinking, wow, what a great world. And then you try to relive it and you go, oh, my God, I feel sick. <laughs> yeah, I love those children's books. There's a wonderful book by Michael Flanders, Flanders and Swan, Michael Flanders. Oh, yeah. and the one I remember was uh, The Walrus Lives on Icy Flows and Unsuspecting Eskimos. Don't take your wife to Arctic Tundra. A walrus may bob up from under. <laughs> That's fantastic. Love it. To be so witty so quickly. That's what I like about it. Yes. I'm with you on this. I think, yeah, the smell of fish. I'm perfectly okay. happy to put that into a very, very airtight container yes. and put it into the capsule and you'll never have to worry about it again. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Have you enjoyed yourself? I've had a lovely time. Oh, I've had a brilliant time, Mike. <laughs> Good. <laughs> really lovely. Thank you so much. I know. Thank you for doing it. I love the programme and I'm so glad that I got in touch. I listen to them every day when I go for my run. Wow. Well, I'm very honoured. Thank you so much. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my lovely guest, Sophie Aldred. Thanks for listening and I hope you've been entertained. Well, entertained enough to want to rate this show highly on the podcast provider you're using. You may even want to subscribe and become a regular listener. My doctor's always saying it's good to be regular. For the really dedicated listener, you can find some places like Apple Podcasts where you can write a review of what you just heard in order to persuade other people to listen. Or not, depending on what you write. Be kind. Now, I'm all over Twitter if you want to follow me or My Time Capsule there. And I'm also on Instagram and Facebook, as is My Time Capsule. And I'm happy for you to contact me through any of those and ask anything you want. Apart from detailed questions about quantum physics, obviously. The theme music by Pass the Peas Music is available on Spotify. This has been a cast-off production for Acast. And it was skillfully produced by John Fenton Stevens. Right, I'll leave you with the classic Doctor Who joke. What else? Knock, knock. Who's there? Doctor. Doctor Who. Look, stop messing about. You were the one who called me and the NHS is under enormous pressure and we can't waste our time doing old jokes. So open the bloody door and let me take over the CPR on your granddad until the ambulance gets here. <laughs> what a classic. Bye. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.